there is a certain interest, a certain prurient interest, I suppose, in talking to the fallen angels. And the next is Jonathan Aitken. He confessed in a book called Pride and Perjury. And he came to see me at the London, at the Langham Hilton in London, in Portland Place. Um, as you probably remember, he's gone off to be a theological student, and um, it seems that he was relatively honest about his fall from grace, and he had been pursued by all all sections of the press, mercilessly. So I wondered if he actually felt like the fox being pursued by the hounds. Uh, you know, when the hounds are... Uh after you, it's a, I have a lot of sympathy for the fox. Um, and, you know, I certainly did feel at one or two stages in this that there were uh, hounds who were on my trail, some of them fairly, some of them unfairly. But anyway, it's happened, and I've written a book about it. And it's not just a story about, um, <coughs> you know, what it feels like to be under attack, although that comes into it. Uh, it's also a much more human and political drama. And it's also, I hope, a story of um, some encouragement hope, redemption, and faith at the end of the journey. But you used to be on the other side, didn't you? Yes. I mean, I you started life in the honorable calling of journalists. Absolutely. I was a journalist for seven years. Of course, journalism has changed out of all recognition. I mean, I was still one of the last old-fashioned print journalists who went out to cover wars like Vietnam and Biafra. And it was a different kind of world. I mean, there wasn't, as far as I was aware, much in the way of investigative adversarial journalism. I mean, journalists were then reporters. They weren't protagonists in a struggle much. Now, yes, I mean, this comes out in the book where the folks from The Guardian really start ferreting away. Um, and the editor of The Guardian is, is writing to you, saying, Dear Jonathan, da -da 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 -da. now, do you, as a journalist, and also as the object of this interest, do you feel that that's a seemly and right thing for journalists to do? Is the uncovering of things the right thing to do? I think, yes, that uh, journalists are the sort of detectives of democracy, um, that up to a reasonable point they uh, should try and uncover scandals in high places or wrongdoing. And I'm therefore not at all critical of the whole principle of uh, journalism which seeks to discover what the rulers are really up to and what's going on. I, and, and I've not uh, in any way said that I think that what's happened to me is monstrously unfair. I've gone along for a long time now saying, well, it happened, you know, uh, I told a lie in court, I deserved a punishment, I've taken it, I've been to prison. And I've really accepted that what I did was very wrong, and I've accepted that I deserve whatever punishment I got. So I'm not in a sort of militant mood of criticism of journalists here. I think it's only no. It's just interesting to see what they they do because there is there is a moment where whatever one feels about you or what you did, you cannot, I don't think, read this bit of the book and not feel for you, where. Um, the information comes through from someone at British Airways. You have said that your wife paid this infamous bill at the Ritz, and then this information comes through, and it proves that she couldn't possibly have done because she was somewhere else. And at that point, you know. And I think 
someone described your face as stone-faced at that point. I mean, how you must have been feeling for, you know, whatever, you got yourself into it, but at that moment, you must have been feeling dreadful. Well, I, I certainly was feeling dreadful, and I think it was the Guardian itself which said a look of stone came over my face, and I say in the book, well, I think it was really tombstone, because I knew that it, I was well and truly buried, and um, that was a moment of devastating truth and devastating failure. Uh, and there was catastrophe coming from it. I knew that immediately. Uh, and I sat there in court for another hour with the barristers droning on, but uh, I certainly knew that catastrophe had struck. I mean, you'd, you'd lived your life in the open when you met your wife, and she said, what do you do? She said, I'm an MP. She misunderstood what you did, but you know, you've been drawn, to, you're one of these people that's drawn to high-profile existence. Why now do you not just crawl away and live very quietly? Well, everyone must deal in their own way with their own problems and their own disasters. I wrote this book uh, before I went to prison, and perhaps in the wisdom of hindsight, I might have, if I'd been in full control, which I wasn't as a bankrupt, I might have altered the timing of publication a bit. Uh, but on the whole, I think, first of all, what I've been through is a piece of political, legal, media and personal history. And it's only right that uh, history should be told from all sides, including the inside. Uh, there have been other books written about this episode. There have been innumerable newspaper articles and television programs. At last, the person in the center of the storm is actually telling it like how it felt from the inside of the storm. Um, secondly, this is a book which, uh, as it grinds through its pages, uh, ends up on a note of um, some hope, and certainly I hope I don't look to you or your viewers as somebody who's miserable and unhappy and crushed, because I don't feel that way. I feel actually I've had a great second chance in life. I've had a change of heart and mind. I've served a prison sentence. I've come out the other side feeling in peaceful and positive spirits. And this is largely to do with what I call in the book my three Fs, faith, family, and friends. But it is possible to go through a disaster and come up the other side um, changed for the better, and I hope that's what's happened to me. Yeah, the, the, but you ask of yourself at several points, why, why, why did I do it, why do it? And that's, as a reader, what you keep asking, because you say, very early on, um, you talk about the, the sort of spiritual hunger, I suppose, the fact that you've seemingly got it all, but still it's not enough. You, t you talk about um, a, a fellow colleague in um, Parliament going and saying, oh, darling, <laughs> Prime Minister, oh, darling, Prime Minister, thank you. And when you're um, elevated, you almost feel the same. You are euphoric uh, to get to the top of the greasy pole. But still, you say, there's a hunger for something else. Well, the book is partly about that something else. It's very difficult to define it, but I think that many people, and certainly many successful people, if they think hard, wonder sometimes what on earth life's prizes are really all about, be they political prizes, prizes of materialism, more money in the bank, more honors and titles, more power. Is that really, as we go on in life, what the whole of life's journey is about? And I was getting nagged with thoughts of this kind uh, long before I was in any sort of trouble. Well, then suddenly I'm hit by trouble in an enormous way. And that certainly accelerates the process of thought along these lines. And 
I've come to the conclusion, which is not a very original conclusion, that perhaps the real purpose of life is not what um, most of us think of it as being, namely our bank balance and our success rating and our status, but it's about what, for want of a better phrase, I call the progress of the soul, the inner life. And if you can find peace there, even in the middle of a prison sentence, if you can find happiness with your family, even in the middle of a disaster, well, maybe you are making real progress in the spiritual realms which you never thought of before. And I think yeah. that's my message of the book. But I want to understand, even though you're feeling like this and are obviously drawn to sort of higher things and trying to do things properly, you still behave badly. And I wonder, is it because that sort of behavior is endemic in the world that you were in? I want to kind of understand, is kind of uh, being economical with the truth part of life at that level? Well, you ask a very deep question, and I'm not sure I really know the answer to it, but I'll try. I think there is something in what you're saying. I mean, I, I think that um, you know, when you're a cabinet minister answering questions at the dispatch box in the glare of television lights, that sometimes you do answer in the evasive or are slightly economical the truth, sometimes for good reasons, such as national security or compromising other people's uh, commercial confidentiality. There are good reasons sometimes for not being truly open in public if you're privy to all kinds of confidentiality and secret arrangements. But there's another reason which is much more common, which is that it's to your advantage, personal or political, to be uh, economical, the truth, and give answers in the evasive. So you are right that the lifestyle sometimes does put pressures on you. That said, I would certainly acknowledge in my own case that far more important than the pressures of the lifestyle, and in my case, I think a lot of this stuff was to do with an urge to be promoted. I mean, you know, why didn't I come clean on the Ritz bill on day one? The short answer was I was in the frame for promotion to the cabinet, and I didn't want a whole lot of sort of journalistic uh, rumors and uh, hostile stories um, about. Uh, you know, whether or not I'd broken the rules of ministerial hospitality, um, damaging my chances of being promoted. Um, and it's much more to do with a fault of character than the pressures. I mean, I accept that now. I didn't see it at the time. Yeah, but you, you're very honest about your character in here. You say that you've probably always been accused of being arrogant, that mm -hmm. you know, people have always seen that in you. And you say, well, it's probably just because you're tall and you're a bit shy and whatever, so it can be. But I wonder, I mean, life was, for a long time, going pretty well, wasn't it? It was. You know, it, and so I wonder, is there a time when you feel that you are immune or above, or because there's this momentum that everything in my life is going quite well, so it's actually all right? Because I'm likely to get away with it. I think success does breed its own armor and its own arrogance. I think that if you are doing well in whatever profession, in my case, politics, and that meant, of course, being surrounded by um, civil servants saying, yes, minister, red boxes, power, sycophants, flatterers, um, a lot of applause, all those sort of things, I think you do sometimes lose touch with a lot of the essential realities of life, including 
uh, keeping the rules, keeping the commandments, and so on. I, I think you think, well, I can rise above that. I can you know, cheat a bit here, cut a corner there, and it'll all be all right on the night. And I think I did have that sort of thinking for a time. Because mm. there's one thing in here that I find it difficult to understand. There's, you know, you can see, yeah, oh, yeah. I've got three daughters. Um, you've got three daughters. And, well, let me put it as a question. When, which is the bit that you find hardest to forgive yourself for? Well, I think I find it hardest to forgive myself for something which isn't in the book at all, which is really not coming to the conclusion that um, God and God's values were important much, much sooner. But coming to the specific um, allegation you're on about, um, I myself say in the book, my worst and most shameful mistake in the whole saga was to involve my teenage daughter in my web of deceit and lies. And I can only say time and time again how remorseful and sorry I am about that. I think um, my daughter has written about this, I've written about this, and there is an explanation for it, even though on my side there's absolutely no excuse for it. And the explanation, as my daughter put it, is that we felt at the time like a family at war. We were in the middle of a libel case, we were having incredible pressures, everything from hate mail to paparazzi sieges. We desperately wanted to win this case, a case which was all about much more important things than the Ritz bill. It was about allegations of corruption, arms dealing, pimping, all of which uh, were untrue and were largely proved to be untrue. But we felt we must win. And uh, suddenly a chink in the evidence opens up and I feel this chink must be closed, even though it actually wasn't a very important chink in the great scheme of things. And so to my great regret, deep shame, I wrote a quick witness statement and my daughter signed it. And the witness statement was untrue in one key sentence. So that's what happened. Uh, and uh, I'm deeply upset about it now. But now... Since that interview was recorded, Jonathan Aitken has been ordained in the Church of England as a deacon, and then following that, ordained as an Anglican priest. He keeps a pretty low profile now, but there are still people in the British media who uh, have words to say about Jonathan Aitken and um, his miraculous conversion. And not only a religious conversion, a political conversion, because his, his last political affiliation was to UKIP. This is the Author Archive podcast.